my, uh, in my preparation for this morning's lesson, I was um, called back to realize that it's been about six years now uh, since I went through probably one of the most difficult emotional seasons of my life surrounding the, the loss of my father when my father passed away. Um, you know, my dad and I, we were, we were buddies more than anything else, and he still remains one of the most pleasant and fun people to be with, at least that I've ever known. And that's one of the reasons why I miss him. Um, and which is also the reason why his funeral was, like anybody who's ever lost a parent will tell you, um, a, a weird mixture of, of, of emotion and pain and joy and sadness. Um, but the last thing my father ever asked me to do was to preach his funeral for him. And in a weird way, I think he was kind of ministering to me in that request because he, I think he could see how helpless I felt as he was deteriorating the way in which he was. And, um, you know, at the time, of course, I brushed it off as being really premature. You know, come on, Pop, you're going to pull through it. You'll be fine. There, there was a lot of comfort that came to me in knowing that, well, you know, this I can do. <laughs> I can put on a funeral service for you. And so when the day finally came, um, you know, we put the service together and I got up to speak. And honestly, it, it was a joy. It was a joy to talk about his life. It was a joy to talk about the gospel that he had taught me ever since I had known but there really was something more profound that grabbed me while I was up there speaking. Um, and, and, it, and it's a little fact that goes like this, because usually I really don't see faces in a given audience. No offense here. Uh, most of the fidgeting, dare I say sleeping, that goes on, it remains nicely anonymous to me. Uh, but for whatever reason, on this particular experience of his funeral, it really was the faces that left the emotional impact on me that particular day. Because it was like my whole life was gathered into one room. I had childhood elementary teachers. I had uh, school buddies. I had college friends. Uh, there were people from RUF that were there. Um, even a bunch of you came with Kurt uh, and some elders at that time. But here's what's so crazy. I, I, I had during that whole 20-minute homily that I did, this tangible feeling of being sustained by the people that were there. It really was weird. I mean, afterwards, people come up, they hug you, they speak to you. But you know, in retrospect, I really don't remember anything that anyone said. What I remember is the presence. That's what stuck with me. You know, for years, I've heard people, religious people, talk about that phrase, let's go be a ministry of presence to so-and-so. And I never knew exactly what that meant and probably condescended to people when they said it. But I've actually come to believe this is kind of a big deal. There is something about the physical presence of another human being who on one level is trying to connect with you uh, that is just, it's its own brand of healing in many ways. Um, it's what I want to ask this morning is this question, why is that the case? Because my answer to that is simply to be stated like this. Our desire to sort of be with other people to get us through things is formatted on our spiritual DNA. We were built for that kind of connection. Because we've come to the study in the book of Exodus where I like to describe it as that place where you stopped, okay? And we're going to take a 30,000 square foot view of a sort of journey I'm sure many of you have been on when you sort of determined you were going to read through the Bible in a year. You got through Genesis maybe, and then you got through the first part of Exodus, but then you hit this wall <laughs> of what seems to be mindless, tedium, uh, almost boring Detail about this, uh, this thing that he starts to describe. And look, it goes on from Exodus 25 all the way through to Exodus 31 of page after page of detail. 
And if that's not enough, the action picks back up in, in chapter 35 and just pours out until the very end of the book almost. And as it turns out, all of this tedium is about how to build a smallish little worship center in the very center of your camp. So you quit your Read Through the Bible of the Year program and decided to find some other more exciting parts of the Bible to read, right? But I don't want to do that this morning because I've come to believe that that embedded in this minutia was a really profound lesson for what it means to be the people of God, like we've been looking at all semester long. Because what God is unfolding in these chapters is a visible architecture of what God is doing in his program to heal the world. And for that reason, in a way that very few other topics in Scripture can really do, you're going to find this theme present in almost every page of the Bible. It's stitched throughout the whole thing. In other words, if you start to grasp what's going on in the tabernacle, you can stitch together almost the entire Bible. And so I want to do just an old-fashioned Bible study this morning to trace this theme from Genesis really all the way to the Revelation. I promise you we're not going to be any longer than you think we are. <laughs> but what I think you're going to find is that the tabernacle is the source of endless insight for the people that look into it. But when it's all said and done, it's also going to help frame what you're doing here this morning. My great question of why we gather So I want to dive into it, unpack it under three headings. First of all, the story. Second of all, the imagery. And the third of all, the fulfillment. Let's look at the first of all, the story. Because again, the chapters describing the tabernacle are not going to make a bit of sense to you until you see what it was that led us to this point. Because it's a culmination of something. The Bible begins with humans living in God's presence. Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the day. He's there. But in their rebellion, that presence is withdrawn. And the first humans are banished from the Garden of Eden. And of course, they're these, they're these you know, sword-wielding angels that are set on the outset to guard this little mountain garden from them being able to re-enter into the presence of God. And of course, the chapters to follow, the world descends into this murderous chaos when all of a sudden in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to a guy named Abraham that through his family, he's going to restore his presence among the people, and actually the whole world to bring them back. And so the whole storyline culminates in this portion of the Bible that we've been looking at in the book of Exodus. God has done performed this amazing rescue for his people. But if you think about it, up until this time, he's really not asked for his people to do anything in response. Well, now that they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, he's got a whole lot of things <laughs> that he wants for them to do. Obviously, this is where the Ten Commandments show up, a study that, Lord willing, we will do this time next fall, so stay tuned. But it includes a lot of other things. We found out last week that when the Jews begin to live in these Ten Commandments, that they become God's chosen representatives to the world, or what they might call a kingdom of priests who would represent these people to a holy God, just the way a priest would do. But there's a problem, (laughs) because when they come up to God's presence and they see it there on the mountain, in chapter 20, we find out they don't want to go. And as a matter of fact, it turns out that there's a good reason. So even God doesn't think it's a good idea, lest you be consumed, he says. So instead of asking his people up to him, God decides he's going to go down to be among their midst. And his plan for doing so is going to be executed in this elaborate tent slash temple. 
And the next thing you know, you get bombarded with these dozens of chapters over these extremely technical and specific architectural blueprints for building this tabernacle. It's actually quite overwhelming. But if there's ever time to miss the forest from the trees, it really is right now. Because the great meaning that's hanging over this instruction for the tabernacle is simply this. The presence of God is returning. He's coming back. But here's the rub. That is not an easy prospect. In my study, I sort of found it interesting to see what commentators would say in order to account for all this detail. Like, it's what jumps out at you the most at the end of Exodus. And you're like, are we going to get done with this eventually? Why the detail? Can't God just simplify this whole thing? Look, having studied this from some time, it sort of suddenly dawned on me a number of weeks ago when I was preparing for this. And that is this, that it really isn't God's fault for the meticulousness of the tabernacle. I think it's ours. Why? Because if there's anything that sin has done in the minds and the lives of God's people, it's to complicate things. Sin complicates. The the original order of creation was just that. It was orderly. Mankind enjoyed this divine simplicity that he lived in in this life-enhancing connection that he had with his father. But to pull ourselves out of alignment with him means that to some degree, life gets sort of plunged into something that's opaque. It's disjointed. It gets confused. And for that reason, probably quite exhausting. Take, take an example, a hypothetical example from a family situation. Let's say that you have a rebellious child who, for some time in their teens, embezzles the family fortune and disappears to live a life on their own. Like any parent, you're disappointed as you, as you are at their choices, but you long for them to come back. Of course you do. But the years stretch on without one word from them. But one day, as you're sitting in your kitchen, suddenly she comes bebopping right back in. Plops down at the dinner table and says, hey, sorry I've been gone for so long. What's for dinner? Now, my guess is, if you're like any parent, what would you say? You'd be delighted at their return, (laughs) thrilled. But you'd also want to sit down with them and say, we probably ought to talk. (laughs) There ought to be some explaining that you want to have done here. We ought to sort of work through this emotional wreckage that you've left in your wake. In other words, there needs to be a reckoning. I, I think that's precisely the reason that the detail of the tabernacle is showing. Because to the degree that you would want an explanation from your child who's come back, how much more does God want to communicate how careful we must be if we're ever really going to approach him again? In other words, it is our sin that has required the meticulousness the carefulness, the exacting plan to help him restore us to himself. I think that's the reason for the minutiae of these passages. But look, there's actually some good news here. (laughs) Yahweh is systematically engineering a perfect salvation for his people, (laughs) which means, among other things, that, that the detail is almost its own encouragement, isn't it? The very detail shows us that if God is going to these kinds of lengths, To put this all together, how confident must I be able to be that he has done all there needs to be done for me to be really and actually and thoroughly forgiven in Christ? The detail is its own encouragement. Quick application before we move on. Look, don't listen to people who sort of roll their eyes at Christianity by saying, you know, I don't understand all the the stuff, all the things that you do, the blood sacrifice, the lambs, the, the cross... 
Can't God just forgive us? I just wave his magic wand and let it be. But, but that's so naive. <laughs> the mind-bending exactness of this unfolding plan of redemption is created to bring you assurance, to assure us that our salvation has been thought through. And to consider just how much damage is done when we begin to think of our salvation before God as some kind of, some kind of fragile, thrown-together truce that may or may not last me. This has been thought out from before the foundation of the world. And my doubt in its effectiveness is betrayed by its specificity. That's the point. The story is leading up to this beautiful picture of our salvation. Secondly, though, I want you to look, though, at the imagery that is contained within the tabernacle. And go and read through it, if you dare, sometime this afternoon, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Because what we have here in the, in the, in the construction of this building are a number of interpretive clues that help us understand what it means. I mean, the truth is, so much of the detail in this construction is important, and it has symbolic value throughout the whole thing. And I just want to highlight four of these little features that are inside this imagery. The first one is the imagery of the Garden of Eden. As you begin to read these instructions that God gives, you begin to realize that all of the, 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 the pictures on the walls, uh, the little uh, decorative features on the furniture, it's all images from the garden, which is simply to remind you that when you're in that tent, you are in God's presence, just like Adam and Eve were before they sinned. And as long as this tent is here, the terms of this relationship are kept and they're secured, at least in theory. More on that next week. But like these designs that are sort of sewn into the curtains all over the tabernacle, there's angels, there, there's cherubim and, and, and seraphs. These are the same heavenly messengers that were placed in the creation story as they guard the original Garden of Eden and God's rebellious, uh, from God's rebellious Adam and Eve. There's even parallels that exist in the very end of the book of Exodus, chapter 39, that are fascinating connections back to Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, what, what, what the Bible is trying to say is that when God was constructing this, this tent, this worship center, creation was on his brain when he did. That's where his mind was going to. Our friends from the Bible Project say that the tabernacle is like a portable Garden of Eden, a place that continually moves around the way into the presence of God. But here's the question. Why would God pattern his worship center after creation? Well, really good question. But in order to answer, there's a second thing we must look at. Not just the Garden of Eden imagery, but also the, the cosmos imagery. Now, this is a little harder to see, but that's the reason why I put a little graphic of the temple, of the tabernacle, in your worship bulletins this morning. Because the very structure of the building is important. N notice, the whole thing is laid out in two perfect squares. At the center of the first of square is an altar, a place of blood sacrifice. At the center of the second square... Uh, it's the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God dwelt. Now, look, this is not just convenient sort of symmetrical design on the part of God. There's something being said. And, and the best commentators will tell you that the tabernacle is meant to be almost a map of how a Jewish person viewed the entire world. It, it's a microcosm of creation itself, both the visible and the invisible. I'm sure you remember very vividly how we talked about this summer, this Jewish cosmology, the way in which he understood what the world looked like around us. The tabernacle was that very thing. It's an idealized cosmos of God's recreated order. In other words, the tabernacle was the world the way it was supposed to be. 
If you don't believe me, you can check in Psalm 78, a wonderful little verse in verse 69 where he says, He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. There it is. It's a map. Look, take a look at that diagram. You've got this temple's outer court, which represented the world inhabited by humans. It's the things that are visible, the earth, the sea, the sky. But then you have the most holy place, which represents the transcendent, the invisible world. That's where the throne of God is, his footstool, the ark, guarded by the cherubim. And of course, there's a giant, huge curtain, a veil, as it were, that separates the visible world from the invisible world. And there's a ban on people entering uh, because of the hiddenness and the holiness of God. There's space, of course, above the footstool, the, the ark, because God is invisible and he can't be represented by any human form. Look, now we start to see what Yahweh is explaining in this design because the tabernacle is his map for his long-term agenda for the cosmos, which you can sum up in one word, recreation. He's fixing it. He's doing it over. (laughs) There's a whole new world order, continuous with the one before, but brand new in everything that his people are bringing. And in order to keep it in front of the people's minds, he sort of makes a perfectly ordered worship spot that shows what his plans are for the world and for his people. Which brings me to the third sort of piece of imagery, and that is the priesthood. The priesthood's fascinating because they are decked out in some pretty fancy duds. But if you look carefully in how their outfits are made, they're made out of the same material that the tabernacle is made out of. (laughs) One commentator said that every priest sort of was a walking (laughs) mini-tabernacle. Because he was the way in which we began to represent men before God. Whenever we get to that topic of representation, it always reminds me of the role of a lawyer. Because if you ever think about what it would be like to appear in court, you only look as good as your lawyer looks, right? You got a slick, professional-looking lawyer, you got a confident plaintiff. Why? Because the courtroom views you through your advocate. That's the point. And so the priests represented how God viewed you. And because they were dressed like the tabernacle, they were representatives of what you were supposed to look like before God. Hence all of the rituals surrounding that. The final piece of detail you get in all these chapters of instruction concerns the Sabbath day. This whole day of rest, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I heard one commentator say that God is literally transforming everything, both space and time. The tabernacle shows how he's going to redeem the spatial things, the things that we can see and the things that we can't see. The Sabbath shows how he's going to redeem time as well by looking and bringing his people into an ultimate, large, mind-bending rest, finally from the tyranny of what sin has caused. Look, here's the big point of all these four themes. The symbolism of this building never left the imagination of the Jewish people. Not only did it not leave, it stayed deeply rooted and embedded in the way they saw everything. The temple became significant throughout the the, the monarchy. It was significant through the conquest of Canaan. It was significant even during that time between the Old and the New Testament, all the way through to when all of a sudden Jesus shows up. In other words, these people had as much emotional and spiritual energy and capital invested in this building than any other aspect of their religion. It was all about the temple, which is the reason why there were bound to be fireworks when a young upstart rabbi starts coming along and saying some really weird things about this whole temple and his relationship to it. Which brings me to the third and final point. 
And that is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And look, it's really okay at this point to be thinking to yourself, I, I can't imagine what this could possibly have to do with me. That's okay. That's appropriate to ask. But my answer to you is, it has everything to do with you today. And especially for the reason why you showed up here this morning. And the answer begins in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, where John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Underline, highlight that word, dwelt. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now look, the English translation obscures something here about what John is saying. Because the word that you have translated dwelt there is literally translated pitched a tent or tabernacled among us. In other words, John is saying that this little obscure Jewish rabbi was claiming himself to be a new temple. The place where the presence of God was to be accessed. This is what Jesus means in John chapter 2, verse 19, when he says, look, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about himself. He means I am now the new meaningful way to find access to God. And look, if you can understand this connection between the tabernacle slash temple and Jesus, it's going to help you understand how the apostle Paul talks about Christians as well. You know, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 16, when he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You, you see the point? It, Paul is saying the relationship that God has between, between Jesus and his people, that he has created between him and his people, is so intimate and so powerful that what may be said to be true of Jesus is also true of his people. So that if he is a temple, then we, by virtue of being in him, are also temples ourselves. That's how Paul reasons. Because he is the ultimate high priest, then we are a kingdom of priests. There's the connection. All of this description points to how Paul views the people of God. By the way, as an aside, let me see if I can take care of some of the emails that I get, get this week. The, the, the you in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, when it says you are the temple, is actually in the plural case. And what it means is y'all, the whole church at Corinth, are the temple. It's not about an individual. And the reason I mention that is because this is not a verse that teaches uh, that suicide is the unforgivable sin, as some have taught in the past. A heinous and destructive disastrous and monstrous sin? Absolutely. But it's not an automatic ticket to condemnation as some people have taught. But where does all this end? Well, it actually ends in the book of Revelation. <laughs> One of the very last scenes that you get in the verse chapter 21 is this new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. And the crazy thing is, when you start to look at its dimensions and its shape, what shape do you think it is? You guessed it. It's a perfect cube. It's a square. What the Bible is saying is God's intention for humanity, the place where history is going, is that God is going to set the world to rights. And he's doing it through his people in Christ so that in the end, he can be with us. <laughs> the ultimate ministry of presence, if you will. And, and, and this, as it turns out, I think explains the final detail about the tabernacle in Jesus. You know, three out of the four Gospels all report that at the moment of Jesus' death, 
This giant curtain, this veil that existed between the visible and the invisible world was ripped from the top to the bottom. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I always heard that taught on, it was set in front of me as if like, and now finally we have access into God. We can finally go in. You know what? That's absolutely true. But if you're really going to get sort of picky about the biblical language, there's something different that's being said, I think, by the split veil. In Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel gives this prophecy where he looks up and sees the temple. And out of the temple from the front steps, there's, some, there's a trickle, a trickle of water coming out. But as it flows out into the courtyard, it becomes a little bit deeper. And then it goes out to the edges of the city, finally to where it's pouring out of the city gates and into the valley and the desert below. And everywhere where the water goes, it takes all of the dryness and all of the deadness and all of the sadness, and it brings life. It resurrects everything around it because of what's happening. (laughs) Do Do you see the point? Y'all, the veil splits, not so that we can go into the presence of God and get our little neuroses healed, even though that's exactly where we go to do it. The, the, the veil is split because God is unleashing his healing power through his people. It ain't we that are going in. It's him who's coming out. And your presence here this morning is the exact proof of that very fact. God is unleashing through his, through, through his people a great healing to all the world. Think about this. I mean, the Jewish people had this amazing sort of institution in their midst. What, what an example this might have, must have been to the watching nations. The watching nations were supposed to look at Israel and see something preach them every time they walked through the camp. A little story that went like this. God's presence was, what was, was, was originally created for mankind to be flourishing in. But they were cast out. But this tabernacle means that you can still go in. Why? Because the tabernacle is Jesus. And today, if you hear his voice, you are living in the time of the split veil. Well, he is rushing out the healing presence of God into all the world. I remember somebody once telling me that like one of the great medicines for grief was to go back to work. So I, I got into the car after my father's funeral to take a six-hour drive from Memphis to Atlanta uh, for a conference that I was working at that next week. And um, may not have been the best thing to do, to spend six hours alone inside my own thoughts after that much kind of an afternoon. And it was one of those afternoons. There was a lot of tears that were shed. There was a lot of sort of recounting memories. It's always fun to think about the good times that you had and counting, counting your blessings. But I'm telling you, in looking back, <laughs> of all the things that sort of sank deep with me, It was the faces. It was the simple little hugs. The the little touches of just a text message to somebody. I thought about you today. I prayed for you today. The emails that came in the days after. It was the faces of people who made tiny little extensions of their life into mine. And so my hope is is that you will never think about Sunday morning the same way ever again. (laughs) Because the tabernacle was not just a symbol of heaven. It was the very intersection of heaven and earth right here, right now. Because as New Testament Christians, we believe that Jesus has come to become the essence of that intersection so that we who are in him by faith, we have been brought into this heavenly reality. So much so that as the church, we are now this new location. (laughs) 
of God's transforming power. People are to come into church and they are to see things being done here as they are in heaven. Sound familiar? You just prayed it a couple minutes ago. To will that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? That it would happen here. That healing power would be in this place. And look, if all that's true, and any, well, actually if any of this is true, do you realize that we can participate in that healing in about four minutes? Once we're done, the people of God come together and communicate oceans to each other by our face lighting up at being able to see someone we haven't seen in a while, by a simple hug, by a simple dose of encouragement. Why? Because this is the heaven on earth that God was intending to be with one another. And what that means is, is you have an opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus to somebody else this very morning. And you may think, that just feels like such a tiny thing. And you know what? That's exactly the way he likes to work. The tiniest little emotions into someone's life can be utterly transformative. That's what a gathering of Christians is supposed to be. So here's my question, Christ Presbyterian Church. How are we doing? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you walk us into that very sense? Because we don't see with your eyes. We're, we're thinking about work tomorrow. We've got prospects of what we're supposed to do this afternoon. There's just a thousand different distractions And this felt a little mundane to come here this morning, but now we realize that it wasn't. So we need your help to see it more clearly. Would you do that? But we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.